Welcome back to 10 and 20, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we bring you interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Sarah. And my name's Brad. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed to the show on iTunes or whatever podcast app you choose. Leave us a review while you're there if you could. And if you'd like to support the show even more, head to boft.org slash podcast where you can sign up for our monthly newsletter and buy one of our 10 and 20 t-shirts. And today on the show, we have our fellow coworker, David Stumple, and he's going to be talking to us about one of Tennessee's presents, James K. Polk. So we're going to throw it to David. So... I feel like we should start by saying I really don't know, like, anything about James K. Polk. Yeah, no, I thought we should definitely tell our listeners that disclaimer that Brad and I are completely coming in with no knowledge. Well, okay, what do I know? I know that he was uh, the second president from Tennessee. He was a president. He was a president. We should start with that. Uh, I know that he served one term. His family farm was down kind of near here. With the Polk House. Mm-hmm. But that's about it, honestly. So, David, why don't you tell us a little bit about who, like, for the uninitiated, who was James K. Polk? Sure thing. Well, just starting off, kind of expanding off what you guys already said, he is going to be the 11th president of the United States. Uh, he is going to have been uh, a one-termer by choice to get elected. He did claim, I will only serve four years. And he was living down in Columbia, Tennessee for a good chunk of his time, uh, though he also would get a lot of schooling in Murfreesboro and actually was born in North Carolina and would return there for his college. That was the same as Andrew Jackson, wasn't it? Yeah, it's very similar circumstances, really. Uh, They are kind of a different generation, but kind of similar upbringing to a degree. I've been kind of thinking over a while, it's like, how do I explain Polk in the short term? So kind of just going over in my head, I was thinking, well, if if you gave me one word, Competent. 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 That's a good word, better than I expected. Yeah. Yeah. If you gave me two words, it's too unimaginative. Okay. Okay. And if you gave me three words, veni, vidi, vici. (laughs) I came, I saw, I conquered? Exactly. Okay, I was like... But whereas Julius Caesar would be saying this in a very boasting manner, James K. Polk would say it as very matter-of-fact, as if he was getting a peer review. Of course, that's exactly what I did. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so he... How old? You said he was born in North Carolina. When did he When did he come to Tennessee, or how old was he? About eight years old by the time he came here. He was going to be born 1795. So it kind of gives you an idea, again, where we're ranging here. His grandfather had been doing some land surveying work out here, felt it was a good opportunity for the whole family, and kind of ends up bringing them all out by the time he's eight years old. Ultimately, James K. Polk's early life is going to be not the most interesting thing in the world, but I'd say he had two major events that really impacted him, neither of which he really had any control over. Okay. The first of these is that he was not baptized. Okay. Uh, he, this is kind of unusual for the era, and especially since we do know his mother was incredibly religious. She was a Presbyterian woman. Uh, but apparently there's some bad blood between uh, his deist father and the local preacher. As as they were supposed to be baptizing him, they got into an argument and they basically just called the whole thing off. (laughs) Okay. So while living in Tennessee, he was attending mostly Presbyterian schools. But I think you could kind of argue this is his first brush with politics to a degree that he realized pretty quickly it's okay to let people assume things about you 
and then not correct them. Okay. If uh, everyone thinks you're a Presbyterian, going to a Presbyterian school, don't tell them you're not baptized. <laughs> so you so you kind of have that card in your back pocket. Exactly. Um, so you're saying his mom was Presbyterian. Yes. And his father was somebody who believed that God exists, but that we either can't or don't know Absolutely. much was, of anything about him. And how old was he when he was supposed to get baptized? He was basically a newborn at okay. that point. I would say less than a year. The other big event that really shapes him and actually is what gets him to go to school in the first place is when he was 17 years old, he had a major surgery. While growing up, he had always been a very sickly boy. He had never really had a lot of active uh, achievements. You know, he was not considered a fast child, not a strong child. He was not doing a lot of labor on the farm. And eventually they kind of figured out that he had bladder stones, basically urinary stones that were in the bladder. As they were trying to get this fixed up, it ends up being a major experimental surgery. They didn't even know if it would work, if he would die on the operating table. And it's pretty gruesome, so I don't know if I'll go quite through all the details. Just understand it was about 30 minutes without anesthetic, where they had to go through his legs, through his prostate, into the bladder with a large scraping device. And some of these stones supposedly were as big as golf balls. Oh my gosh. Oh wow, okay. And after all of that, it's no wonder he was not going to really be very uh, easily persuaded by anyone else. His view yeah. was kind of his view. How old was he? 17. And unfortunately as well, it's this surgery that likely caused James K. Polk to be unable to have children. Hmm. So that would play into things later on. So they pulled golf ball size uh, urinary. bladder stones, yeah. urinary stones, through his leg? Through, oh, between okay. his legs is the general oh, reason oh, we're talking oh, about oh. there. I think I understand yeah. that. Yeah, that's, that's all we need to say. All we need to say. <laughs> Ultimately, all of these things uh, that we just described kind of do affect him down the road. They really, I think, shape his personality. He's going to be described very much as a stubborn man. He is a very aggressive speaker. And speaking is kind of what he becomes well known for. At UNC Chapel Hill, where he was, which was his alma mater, he joins the debate team. He is really going to be involved there. And throughout his schooling, most of the people he knows go on to become pretty famous individuals, mostly congressmen, senators, governors. And actually, one of his classmates was the older brother of his future wife, Sarah. Okay. Yeah. Now, he was 17. She was 11. So uh-huh. it was not love at first sight. But clearly, uh, a relationship did come okay. from that. Okay. And ultimately, as much as he was a very, again, I'd say bullheaded man, Sarah Polk really was the only person who could change his mind. She was really the epitome of the power behind the man, I think you could say. Okay. (laughs) It seems interesting that I feel like a lot of politicians of his day and age were able to get by for a long time on just being able to talk well and to be able to command a crowd. They didn't necessarily have to know everything. I mean, Mm -hmm. I've been researching Andrew Johnson quite a bit, and that seems like he could speak. And that's about all it can do. Well, that was an entertainment kind of thing. When you don't have TVs, you don't have radios or any other major event, going on and seeing a politician speak can be your highlight of your month in a small town. That's absolutely right. I mean, uh, when you really look at how it goes as well, you could tell most of the time when Polk was speaking, he was speaking not for himself, but for some sort of cause. Usually, he was very big on fighting for the people. That is definitely a characteristic of him. 
he definitely did see that uh, the people were what needed to have a voice, and that's what he was hoping to fight for. And being around at the time he was from Tennessee, that typically meant he was going to be speaking for or on behalf of President Andrew Jackson. <laughs> right. I think I mentioned already, he's not really necessarily going to be the most religious individual himself because of his lack of baptism. He kind of had a very open mind to religion, but he was not really going to church regular basis on his own. He would go with Sarah. Okay. basically the idea. But if there was one thing that he would have considered to be his Bible, it would have been the Declaration of Independence. It would have been the works of Thomas Jefferson. And in that case, you could kind of say Jackson is the second coming. <laughs> I explain if, what you mean. Yeah. So basically, he feels that from... Polk, the, Polk feels that Jackson is that Yes. Yeah. yeah. James K. Polk felt that uh, Andrew Jackson really is going to be this figure who is going to change the world. He is going to be this leader who is going to absolutely bring about a greater place, take you to the promised land, so to speak. And that's why... As he's going, coming up in local politics, as he's coming up in the Congress, becomes the Speaker of the House, becomes the Governor of Tennessee, all of this really is for the benefit of Jackson and his democracy, his Democratic Party. So Polk viewed Jackson as like the torchbearer for the Founding Fathers, specifically for Thomas Jefferson. Absolutely. And everything Polk did was trying to help Jackson with that? Absolutely. And even after Jackson's presidency... Again, you can kind of see he's trying to help restore that Jacksonian ideal to a degree. You could almost say that he's too unimaginative. Polk is not this big idea man. He's not the guy coming up with the policies. He's the guy fighting for the policies. He's the guy trying to convince you that this is the right way to go. So he's almost piggybacking his ideas from Jackson. Absolutely, yeah. When did he and Jackson meet, or did they know each other personally? They would have met uh, when he was just a young guy starting off in Congress. He had, of course, heard of General Jackson, but he was not really in the inner circle quite yet. I do want to be clear. When I was saying that he's not imaginative, I just mean that he's not creative. Don't question his intelligence. Okay. This man is incredibly brilliant. He is the top of his class. He gave the commencement address at UNC Chapel Hill. Again, with a lot of other future governors, senators, congressmen in his graduating class. This is the cream of the crop, and he knows how to navigate the political landscape. He knows how to be a bit duplicitous, conniving. And I know those sound like cutting words, but honestly, it's not a question. It's not my opinion. It's from his diary. (laughs) We... Uh, know that James K. Polk is going to be one of those presidents who, if he had a tape recorder, he would have recorded everything he'd ever done. Uh, he would have possibly gotten in trouble like uh, President Nixon. Uh, okay. And he was very, frankly, two-faced, or at the very least, polite in company and then spitting poison in private. Okay. And what you see is that he's able to kind of navigate this so well that Not only does he work his way into Jackson's inner circle, he somehow becomes the first dark horse candidate to become president of the United States. By dark horse. Yeah, what do you mean by dark horse? So, in the election of 1844, James K. Polk was a failed politician. He had been governor, he had been speaker, so people knew who he was, but he had lost re-election to the governorship of Tennessee twice. So it's been years since he's actually been active in the actual political landscape. He'd been campaigning, he'd been trying to push agendas, but he hadn't really held office for a while. 
And now he was actually hoping to be the vice president to Martin Van Buren's re-emergence. That was his end goal, really. But what we see with the convention of 1844 is that he's kind of quickly becoming everyone's second choice. And that's an idea he wanted planted in everyone's head. Well, if not Van Buren, then who? Hmm. And so ultimately Van Buren, while he got him in a majority of votes at the convention, he did not get the required two thirds. And so everyone started to kind of take a second look at Polk and think, well, maybe there's our compromise. Maybe there's the guy who can kind of bring everyone together, bring the party together. And of course we know he would go on to become the youngest president at that time. How old was he when when he was elected president? Uh, He would have been 49 at the convention, to give you an idea. And he's going to be, again, the youngest at that time. We do have younger presidents after the fact, but it's kind of uh, jarring to a degree. Probably the best example I could give you as well as why he's just kind of a brilliant politician is that after the convention, now that he's the nominee, James K. Polk realizes that because he's the youngest president, because he's kind of seen as a failure by some, and because he just beat all these great titans in the Democratic Party, and it's, it really is a laundry list. Again, you have ex-president Martin Van Buren, Governor and General Lewis Cass, you have Senator John C. Calhoun, and Thomas Hart Benton, all trying to take the same job one day. And he realizes if he alienates any of these people, he's doomed. And so what he basically did was string them all along. He says, I will only serve one term as president to encourage these other men to throw their weight behind him, hoping to get in well with him, and that he will name them the successor to himself. Huh. Interesting. And of course, he chose none of them after the fact. <laughs> so he campaigned saying he was only going to serve one term. Yeah, it was, was a that, promise. Was that simply... Because he wanted these other politicians on his side, or was there any other logic in that? I think it was just pure politics. He wanted to win the election, and the best way to do that was to unite the party. And kind of dangling the carrot in front of the horse was a good idea, I guess you could say. So he got the election of the he got the Democratic Party nomination, mm-hmm. which was then the party of Andrew Jackson. Absolutely, and he's carrying that torch in. Mm-hmm. I know his nickname was Young Hickory. But did that come about as a re- in that same time, or when do we? Yes, that actually came about uh, soon after the convention, where kind of mockingly, his Whig op- opponent, the perennial uh, opponent Henry Clay, so, kind of said deridingly, well, "Who is this boy? Who does he think he is?" And someone from the crowd apparently shouted. Young Hickory. Yeah. And I'm obviously referencing Andrew Jackson as being old Hickory. Exactly. And so I think the election was just as much Polk's to win as it was Clay's to lose. And so I think that's kind of what we can look at. He was definitely overconfident. And how much did Polk end up winning? It was a pretty narrow margin, actually. He did not have a mandate, so to speak, coming into office, which honestly, I think that makes his achievements in office even greater because he really didn't have an easy path ahead of him. And that's probably the one thing most people do tend to know about James K. Polk. He is going to be a president who said what he was going to do, and he did it. He had four pretty well-marked things that he said, I'm going to do this. Maybe not again in public, but he was writing it down. He talked to his cabinet about it. And just for the kind of list this out, the four things were he's going to reduce the tariffs, help farmers again, every man was his, it was his goal there. He's going to revive an idea from Martin Van Buren, which was going to be the independent treasury, though Polk changed the name to the constitutional treasury, kind of make it his own idea. 
And then the other two ideas were basically to settle the northwest border with Britain. At that point, the Oregon Territory, as it's called, was kind of shared by both nations. It was kind of, we won't step on your toes, you won't step on ours. Polk decided, no, we just need to go ahead and draw a line. And it is actually the modern day border for the most part. And then the final thing was that he wanted to bring New Mexico and California into the Union by any means necessary. As we probably already know, there is a war that does come of that. I think what's important to notice that, again, these are not things that he wanted, and these are all things that did happen. So that's really, I think, the first thing to go over, is that this wasn't something that we were like, oh, well, what was was his hope for this? No, it's something that does happen. We have to deal with the ramifications of today. Okay. Another thing I would say just on that note is that depending on who you are as the listener— that's going to make all the difference for how you feel about some of these achievements. A great example, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying, with Polk being unimaginative, he really can only imagine what he thinks the end result is. He doesn't really expect anything other than what's in his head. So best example I can give is with the tariff. For those who don't already know, this tariff has been kind of a big issue over the last few presidencies, really, since Andrew Jackson's time, really. And... Ultimately, we know that there was a big crisis that came out of this, the nullification crisis uh, involving John C. Calhoun and the possible secession of South Carolina from the Union. Now, of course, this South Carolina did not end up seceding, but this problem was pervasive throughout pretty much the entirety of American politics for decades. And it made a lot of bad blood in the party. It made a, bad, a lot of conflict in these politicians. And so Polk saw the tariff not only as a way to help the everyman, but as a way to kind of bring these nullifiers, to bring Calhoun's wing of the party back into the fold. Kind of say, look, let's let bygones be bygones. I fixed your problem. We can move on. Can you explain what the tariff actually did or what he hoped it would do? Yes. So effectively, the tariff is going to be trying to uh, help and promote businesses in the North, help promote industry in the North, because, well, that's just where all the industry really was at that point. Of course, this is going to be kind of exacerbating this north-south split. Agriculture versus industry is going to be kind of at each other's throats. And again, most people at this time were still farmers. So you could say that the tariff was really helping the elite to a degree. So now, unfortunately for Polk, he does reduce the tariff. It's by a single vote that he manages to pull this off. And while the economic ideas do go through, the political ones completely fall apart. It's at this point James K. Polk, I think, realized that the nullification crisis had nothing to do with tariffs. It was a dry run for what John C. Calhoun really wanted to nullify. That was any attempt to outlaw slavery. Mm. And I think he sees that his attempt to bring the party together kind of blows up in his face. And that's kind of what I'm getting at. It's all these little things he's done have these little caveats to them. Like, take the independent treasury. Uh, The really successor to this, what we see today, is what is today the Federal Reserve. And I can be pretty frank, again, I I know people on both the right wing and the left wing who don't really like the Federal Reserve. So now, again, that's really just going to be dependent on who you are as a listener and really what your opinions are politically. But that is something that definitely has the kind of baggage to it to a degree. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, of course, the other two things both kind of fall under one big umbrella expansionism 
that really was the goal. You've heard the phrase manifest destiny, I'm sure. But I prefer to say it's just pure and simple expansionism. Spread the country as far as we can. Get as many resources as we can. It's going to just be better for the country maybe in the future. But there are a lot of ramifications to that that even in Polk's own time got him into trouble. Right. The most basic being, well, there are people who already live in those areas. Yeah. <laughs> so, Or people or yeah. countries who already own those areas. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Now, this is actually where, of course, the Mexican-American War comes into the discussion. And honestly, that is going to be the biggest part of Polk's legacy, just because this was going to be a war that kind of redefines the borders. This is a war that really does redefine what America is going to be. It really, I think, makes us a superpower to a degree. And it completely just jumpstarts the careers of so many people who would end up being important in the Civil War. Jefferson Davis, Zachary Taylor's going to be a big general, Winfield Scott, Robert E. Lee, John C. Breckinridge, and even Moscow Carter. So kind of gives you an idea. It should be noted that the way the Mexican-American War started, and just for everyone to be on the same page here, we, as a country, sent some soldiers down into what was a disputed territory. It was not officially Texas. It was not officially Mexico. It was kind of just everyone's kind of going for it at the same time. Polk intentionally sent men down there, knowing it would provoke the Mexican army into shooting first. Ultimately, we know that Polk then went to Congress and said, they shot first, we need to declare war. But clearly, again, if you look at it, the Americans kind of were the antagonist in this one. We kind of did instigate this war. And he was called on it pretty much immediately. The Whig Party jumped all over this. And actually, probably the most notable person uh, was a young congressman from Illinois named Abraham Lincoln. Uh, who? Abraham Lincoln. Oh, I, I think I've heard of him. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, just well, a little bit. <laughs> what I'll say is that uh, at that time, though, he was actually going to be more well-known as Spotty Lincoln, just simply because he kept looking for the exact spot where blood had been shed, trying to prove, was it American soil where these men were shot? No, of course not. And of course, he was just raked through the mud for, for that. But... um. It worked out well for me in the long run. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, sort of. Yeah, yeah, I guess I guess assassination kind of puts a damper on things a little bit. But um, so so Polk instigates this war and is immediately called upon. You know, why did you do this? But what was the public response to it? Honestly, it was kind of mixed at best. In the initial part of the war, I think everyone very much had an idea that yes, of course, we will support our government if we've been attacked. But as the war starts to drag on for a little bit longer, we start to see that the nationalism's kind of dying down a little bit, and everyone's kind of starting to see, wait a minute, we're clearly winning the war, but what are we getting for this? We're taking a huge swath of land. We could even take all of Mexico, and people are starting to read into the politics of all that. Of course, the idea of Western expansion, and thus the expansion of slavery, was on everyone's minds. And if we have that much land gained that quickly, what is going to happen to the free state, slave state balance in the nation? What's going to happen to our country? And we haven't covered this yet, but what was Polk's view or what were Polk's views on slavery? Honestly, I would say it's pretty typical of a Southerner from Tennessee of that era. He owned about 49 enslaved people in his life, 20 he had inherited from his father, the rest he had purchased, many of whom he actually purchased as president 
he also did freely admit at one, though, what, at one time, though, that he does see slavery as an evil. Hmm. He was open about that, but he also didn't ever do anything to curtail slavery. He never really was against the expansion of slavery. And at one time on Congress, uh, he did actually talk about the benefits of whipping. And now, of course, he was also very much, I'd say, a hands-off uh, slave owner. He really did not go and see the farm on a regular basis. In fact, the farm was in Mississippi. So it was really more just like a, a business venture to him. And ultimately, we know that when he dies, he will leave all of these enslaved people to his wife, Sarah, to be freed upon her death. Hmm. Though the 13th Amendment is passed before that does come to pass. It, it's interesting because as you talk about him, he does seem very reminiscent of many of the founders, particularly mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson, Absolutely. who you brought up earlier. Absolutely. And I, I think, that, again, that was his hope. He wanted to be a kind of a descendant of these great men in his eyes. In lack of any other formal religion, I think that kind of was his religion to a degree. Did the Mexican War... Was it only during his presidency, or did it continue on It after? ends with Polk's presidency. It is going to be one of our shorter wars, just about two and a half years. But ultimately, we know, again, it's a war where the president lied to expand the nation. Tens of thousands of people died. The issue of slavery is going to be exacerbated. And even today, we can kind of see the next things that kind of happen is that the people who did already live in those states, or what would become states... Uh, the Latino Americans, the Native Americans, are going to have a lot of their rights stripped of them. I mean, that was kind of one of the ironies of California becoming a state. There were Latino Americans who voted to become a state in the United States and then lost their right to vote. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's incredible. Yeah. And it's really just one of those situations that while he did not necessarily cause these things intentionally, he did not do this all single-handedly. It all does kind of happen because of James K. Polk. And so that's what I mean when I say his legacy is kind of complex. He's not like a President Reagan or Franklin Roosevelt, because these presidents kind of have their legacies standing on their own two feet. They don't rely on anyone else to really determine, what do you think about me? Again, you can make your own opinion about those those presidents, but ultimately, Polk is reliant on the legacies of so many other presidents. Jackson, Van Buren, Fillmore, Taylor, and Lincoln as to kind of what will define how we feel about him. Does that make sense? It makes a lot yeah, of no, sense. That's, yeah, that's a really interesting point. Quickly, just what were the results of the Mexican War? What actually yeah. did we gain? Overwhelming victory is what happened. Ultimately, after the war, we see that the country has kind of turned against it. Henry David Thoreau has written civil disobedience mm-hmm. because of this war. Ralph Waldo Emerson has claimed that this war has been like swallowing arsenic. It's going to kill this nation. And, well, even though the Whig Party came out very strongly against the war, they had the benefit that the two men who really did the most to lead us to victory, Winfield Scott and Zachary Taylor, were both Whigs. So they get all the political advantage of the win. So this is why Polk actually will only serve his one term, and then Zachary Taylor of the opposition party replaces him. So it's kind of a, the Whigs got to have their cake and eat it too, to a certain degree. <laughs> and how does, how does Polk's presidency add to the push towards civil war? Really, I think it's 
the first domino to fall in the long run. I, I, I tend to give a lot of credit to the Missouri Compromise for kind of kicking the can way, way, way down the road. I think this war, though, is what ends up being the first instance where civil war is on the horizon. And yes, about a decade after Polk leaves office, we are in a civil war. One thing I should note, of course, is just simply the fact that Polk is, again, not a complicated man. You can kind of get a feel for who he was initially. You know what his agenda is, and you either were going to be on his team or you're not. You're either with him or you're against him. And this is why uh, Polk really just didn't trust any Whig. He didn't trust any of them. He didn't trust Democrats who used to be Federalists. He only was a a true believer of, of sorts, if that makes sense. If you were anyone he doubted at all, he might make a deal with you. He might say, I'll give you this if you give me that. But he would never follow through. He would always leave you wanting. Do you think people realize that? As <laughs> they absolutely did, okay. yeah. By the time he was leaving office, most congressmen have realized, don't ask Polk for anything. He's not going to come through for you. <laughs> So then what made him stay true to his word that he would only serve for one term? Well, I think because he was a man of honor to a degree. Again, I think he very much saw the ends justify the means, but he doesn't want his name raked through the mud. He doesn't want to be seen as a guy, at least on the national level, as someone who is going to just completely go against what he said he would do. He pledged to that he would t- serve only one year, and so he did. Or one, one term. One term. term. One yeah. term. Sorry. Yes. What happened to Polk after his presidency? He dies a few <laughs> months later. He dies at the age of 53. It's very likely that President Polk, as well as his predecessor, William Henry Harrison, and his follower, Zachary Taylor, may have all accidentally been poisoned. And I do mean accidentally. It was not a conspiracy theory. This is not someone needs to go and uh, rewrite the history books necessarily. But all three of these presidents die of gastrointestinal problems. And what's found is that it's very likely that the water supply for the White House was contaminated. Up the river from where they were, there was a repository, and these heavy metals basically just got into their water. And actually, this is not going to stop even with Polk and Taylor. There are several other folks who would have died, most notably Willie Lincoln, the 11-year-old son of President Lincoln. And this is one of those things that has, again, kind of just recently been theorized about, it does seem very plausible, because this many people living in one spot, all dying of very similar causes, just doesn't happen. Were there other folks in the area that were also using that same kind of water that were having the same problems? If there were, there isn't necessarily great documentation for that. That makes sense. But because these were our presidents, we can kind of tell when did they get sick? At what point Mm. were they being prescribed things by doctors? In fact, that's probably why the one president In between those guys, John Tyler survived. He was taking mercury chloride, which was basically going to force him to purge on basically a daily basis. So he didn't have enough time to keep anything in his system. Hmm. Not to mention it probably helped that he mostly drank liquor, not water. So, (laughs) And they say alcohol kills you. Yeah. (laughs) So what what is Polk's legacy? Really, Polk's legacy is that kind of very... Matter of fact, I came, I did what I wanted to do, and that's it. I think it's, again, something that's, I've described almost like a contractor. You were hired to do a job, you did the job, and now you leave. Pay me (laughs) and leave. Pay me no leave. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, But honestly, I I feel like 
his legacy can be summed up probably the best by President John F. Kennedy, who himself was a bit of a historian. I'm going to paraphrase this just because it's a little too long. Can but you do a Kennedy impression as you... Why I could, I suppose <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> not bad, not bad. That's darn good shouter. <laughs> uh, but to kind of paraphrase Kennedy a little bit here, his point is that if Polk isn't considered great after doing everything he promised he would do, what hope do the rest of the presidents have? <laughs> and yeah, that's kind of fair. <laughs> well, it sounds like he, he quite literally reshaped the country. Absolutely. He's certainly going to be one of our most consequential presidents, if not necessarily the most well-remembered. He kind of has to rely on other people to carry his legacy for him. That's probably the reason why you haven't heard of him as much. Thank you for listening to our amazing interview with David. And thank you to David for being on this episode. Yes, and telling us so much that we didn't know about Polk. And if you would like to keep up with what we're doing here, follow us on Instagram at T-E-N-N-I-N-2-0-Podcast, so 10 and 20 podcast, or follow Carter House and Carnton on Facebook. And if you'd like to reach out, send us an email at podcast at boft.org. And visit the two sites. You never know. You may get Brad or I as your guide, or, or da- even David. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening.